Good morning and welcome to the Recovery from Politics podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Frame, and today is February 5th, 2021. Uh, President Biden gave a speech, his first major foreign policy speech yesterday at the State Department in D.C. Uh, Most of it was uh, a lot of platitudes, a lot of, uh, you know, we can do better and, you know, America's back and all that. But there were some consequential points to it. it began mostly with his uh, emphasizing support for the diplomats and the allies that actually have to work with the State Department and within the State Department. There's been a hollowing out in recent years uh, where career professionals were shoved aside in favor of political lackeys. And that has kind of cut morale at the State Department, which is not good anywhere. I mean, nobody likes working somewhere where morale is low, but uh, knowing that you're surrounded by a bunch of political flunkies uh, I don't think that makes for anybody's day. So it's a good thing that he, you know, did emphasize that. That is something that is still an ongoing problem. I mean, a lot of the State Department was purged uh, during Trump's tenure there, uh, again, in favor of political lackeys and people that would just say yes all the time. Uh, this is a, a problem. Uh, you can't just come in on like a executive order, sign it, and everything goes back to the way it was. Um these people are human beings. They had lives. They had careers. Uh, somebody came in and told them to bug off. They did that. Uh, but where are they now? You know, it's been a few years. Uh, most of them have moved on to other jobs, not in government. Possibly they're getting paid more. Possibly they had to uproot and move their family. <clears throat> Excuse me. They had moved their family away. So, you know, you can't just snap your fingers and bring these people back. You're going to have to I mean, try to get as many back as you can, uh, but also at the same time, it's it's a tall order. You have to rebuild the State Department from the ground up. Um, you have to, in essence, create experienced individuals who know what they're doing, and that only comes with time. So, <clears throat> oh, excuse me, that is an issue uh, that he's going to have to deal with, that Secretary Blinken is going to have to deal with moving forward. Uh, kind of the same way uh, when Trump's first Secretary of State, um, God, he eludes uh, my mind, but he was the oil guy. Uh, when he came in, he immediately started purging under the guise of, "Oh well, there are too many, too many people here. You know, we're just trimming the fat." Kind of a deal. Um, this Secretary of State Blinken is has to come in here and do the opposite. So I wouldn't be shocked to see a lot more younger, fresher faces straight out of college kind of a deal come into the State Department and start flexing some muscle with those ideals. Um, It is a little dangerous because you will have more inexperienced individuals. They won't be political flunkies, which is always a positive, uh, but they will be inexperienced on the world stage. So mistakes could be made um, and that could uh, in turn hurt this particular presidency as far as how he wants to project you know, his foreign policy going forward, a small time aid could make a huge mistake. So that's something they have to navigate in the future. Um, He said, uh, quote, he wants to repair our alliances and engage the world. Um, A lot of our alliances were damaged under Trump. Uh, A lot of world leaders did not care for him and not just because on the right, it's portrayed as "aha, Trump was after them because they were they were milking the golden goose." You know, they were they were uh, taking advantage of the United States this whole time, and Trump held them to account. Well, that's not actually true. See, I was actually pretty anti-NATO myself. 
until Trump came around. It was something that wasn't really argued. It was something that was a given. Uh, everybody knew NATO was there. Um, and I sat there in the back of the class thinking, well, if NATO's main job was to be anti-Soviet Union and the Soviet Union doesn't exist anymore, what's its job? You know, what the heck is the point? Uh, it was in response to that uh, that whole Iron Curtain situation. So I kind of agreed with Trump when he said, you know, he wanted to perhaps move on from NATO. Uh, again, mostly because th this was a conversation that was never had. Everybody just took it as a at face value. And the only people who said, oh, yeah, let's need NATO were, you know, guys like me on the Internet saying, yeah, you know, it doesn't make sense to me because nobody was ever there arguing in favor for it because it was a given. So they would just look at somebody like myself or Trump and just dismiss them and be like, well, they're crazy. They don't know what they're talking about, which was true. <clears throat> but it turns out NATO, the EU, uh, World Health Organization, these large organizations that you see, these conglomerates of countries that have been formed over decades do serve a broader purpose. Um, so it is true that we, the United States, uh, pays the lion's share of NATO. And what do we get in exchange for that? Well, you know, those countries like France and Germany and, and Britain, they get to not spend so much on the military, which is great for them because those countries get to have things like universal health care and whatnot, and they don't have politicians arguing over that. It's just, oh, yeah, well, we have the money, so why not? Whereas the United States, of course, plays, you know, pays an insane amount of money. Uh, for our military and also for their benefit. And we have bases around the world. Um, we have over 100 bases worldwide. Uh, we are strategically placed to strike anywhere on the planet at a moment's notice. Our closest adversary, I believe, is Russia with maybe nine bases outside of its own territory. And those are all mostly along its border, you know, with bordering nations. So that does seem to me a bit much. And if you wanted to talk about reducing our military footprint, that would be fantastic. Uh, however, you have to think of the trade-off. So yes, we provide these countries with military uh, support. But what it also does is it prevents another World War III. You see, World War I happened because Europe was all kinds of disengaged from each other, and they had huge militaries, and it was a, it was a huge arms race, and thank God the nuke, the nuke wasn't invented during this time. Um, and these countries just kept fighting everybody. And of course, once one started, they all got dragged into it because one, it's local, and you know, two, all these treaties and everything else. And of course, some people wanted the Germans to win and other people wanted the French to win. And it was a big deal. So everybody was involved and it eventually ended up enveloping the entire world, hence World War One. Well, World War One happened. We attempted the League of Nations. The League of Nations was an abject failure. A lot of things didn't happen. The whole treaties after World War One were punitive. Uh, they were not interested in rebuilding the economies of Germany. They were interested in punishing them. This, of course, had a backwards effect and directly led to World War II, where basically the same thing happened. Uh, a few countries really didn't like the way things were, decided to take it upon themselves to dominate the world, and eventually dragged the entire world into World War II, only this time it ended with nukes. <clears throat> so the United States and its allies after World War II decided, okay, well, this there's enough of this crap. And basically we decided, you know, 
if Germany, France, England, and the rest can't go to war, then they won't. So it was easier to do with countries that we had just dominated, say, for example, Germany and Japan. We actually have treaties with them where they can only grow their military so much. So this idea, first off, just to go off on a little tangent, this idea that Germany somehow has to pay more for their military is kind of dumb considering it's our treaty with Germany when they surrendered uh, that keeps their military small. Same thing with Japan. <clears throat> anyway, back to this. We were really concerned with, you know, these countries dragging us down into another world war. We did not want that. So we had the UN. That was great. But what would stop Britain or France or Germany or any country for that matter from just sparking up and doing it all over again? Just because they wanted to. I mean, Germany was pretty much all by itself. You could, you know, yeah, there was Japan, but Japan wasn't about to envelop the entire world until they joined forces with Germany. Then it became an issue. So you had, you know, one country decided to take it upon themselves and declare war on the world, and the rest of us were all caught and like, oh, great, now we're in World War II. We needed to prevent this from happening again. If, say, for example, France had enough of the Soviet Union's crap, the last thing we wanted was France starting World War III with the Soviet Union. After all, France was not a superpower. We were at the time. We didn't want that. And at the time, we also had nuclear weapons. Nobody else did. This was a plus for us. So we had to put our thumb on the scale of peace, believe it or not. NATO is one of those peacekeeping things that wasn't really designed for peace, but it worked. So... We keep the militaries of Britain, France, Germany, and a handful of other countries in NATO down. We purposefully tell them, no, you cannot have a large stockpile of weapons and soldiers just waiting in the wings to go. Because it, politicians like to play with their toys. And when they have lots of them, it makes it really hard for them to resist. So the United States decided, we will cover your military defense. Do not build up against the Soviet Union. That's our job. We will do that. And yes, we did shoulder a lot of this. We created NATO specifically against the Soviet Union, but also as a means to prevent World War III. Because again, if Britain, France, Germany, and all those others are in league with us and NATO, they're probably not going to war with each other. Good thing. <laughs> so, what was the trade-off? Peace? Well, that's a bit different. See, now this is the beauty of NATO that actually works out really well. Yes, we pay an incredible amount of money for their protection. We are protecting right now French and British citizens from anything, really. Uh, while it was implicitly created to defend against the Soviet Union, that wasn't the only thing it could be meant to defend against. For example, the only time NATO has ever been called into action was on September 12th, 2001. Obviously, the Soviet Union was not involved with that. So it can be called upon for pretty much anything. And while NATO's recent mission is more focused on terrorism, and, uh, and still Russia is a player, uh, we still do have Putin. So it is there, but it's mostly a check on terrorism and is more focused these days on the Middle East than anything else. The trade-off is this, when the United States economy 
goes to Europe to buy something, we have to negotiate with one of those countries. We don't get our way all the time. We don't. Sometimes France wins in a trade dispute, in, in, a, in a, you know, normal everyday negotiation. Sometimes these countries win, but more often than not, we win. It's like you're playing a football game, United States versus France, but the United States is spotted two touchdowns. We start the game 14 and 0. And then, you know, whoever wins a negotiation wins a negotiation. But that's the way our trade deals work because of NATO, because of these alliances and everything. Yes, we pay an insane amount of money for military protection. The trade-off is we have jobs. Our economy is almost guaranteed to be strong as long as something like NATO exists. We have them over the barrel. We get the benefit of the doubt. Like I said, we start every negotiation with two touchdowns. The negotiation hasn't even started. We're probably going to get our way. That is the point of all these organizations. Yes, we get the added bonus, no World War III, but on the back end of this deal, we get the benefit of the doubt on all of this. That was the whole point of all these things. The EU was primarily built, and I, I refuse to dis, you know, the, with ever, you know, to, to argue with people on this, but I know for a fact the EU was built in part to deal with NATO. The, Europe was getting fleeced by the United States and everything, so they actually had to band together and form their own economic forum to compete with us. And that, too, also has the added bonus of chances are nobody in the EU is going to war with anyone else in the EU. They're now economically dependent on each other. It would be ridiculously stupid to do that. Could it still happen? Absolutely. World War I, the day before World War I happened, there were still articles being written in France, in Germany, saying, ha, we'll never go to war. Everyone's making too much money. That would be dumb. It still happened. So yes, it could still happen, but the likelihood is much, much less. So that's that's the whole point of NATO. And, you know, I will thank Trump for making it front and center because it forced all the talking heads, all the politicians, all the generals, all the admirals to get on TV, to, to write books, and to actually explain, hey, everyone, this is actually why you need this thing. And before Trump and his movement, no one talked about it. If you said you were anti-NATO or thought NATO was dumb, everyone just rolled their eyes and moved on. No one argued to defend it. And when the arguments were presented, I sat here and said, you know, that makes sense. It totally makes sense. It was just a facet of the world that I had not explored. It was something that no one had ever explained to me. Like I said, when you have an idea and everybody dismisses you out of hand, like, ugh, you're crazy, that doesn't exactly spark inspiration to go to your local library and read up on the subject. It makes you think something's wrong with you. So I, I get it. And again, this is how conspiracy theories happen. You know, when you just roll your eyes and discount someone, it doesn't exactly make them go, well, I'll prove to you the moon landing was faked. 
I'll go to the library and read up all the books on it. No, that, that's not what happens when you dismiss somebody. They just go away. They, they retreat. So I am glad that he made that a, a, an issue at the forefront. He didn't have to become president for that because the entire campaign in 2016 when he was talking about leaving NATO, that got the ball rolling and that got my opinion changed immediately because, again, I actually had experts talking about all the ways in which we benefit from this and removing from it that whole, you know, you have to take the price tag into account. There is much, much more, there's diplomatic currency, there's economic currency that is a result of this actual currency we are spending on a military. It is a much larger thing. So it is nice to have a president now who, who understands that, who sees that, and who realizes that in the long run, it would be a horrible mistake to alienate our allies and to leave something like NATO. Um, so that was something that uh, Biden spoke about there. Uh, another thing that was very unique to him was he called out Russia directly. He said he spoke on the phone with Putin, told him, you know, the days of us just sitting back and letting him poison whoever the hell he wants, that's going to be over. Uh, he didn't specifically cite military bounties. I think because that was done, you know, third way, in indirectly, it wasn't like the Kremlin was actually paying the assassins directly. I think there needs to be more investigation on that. And also he might be keeping that in his back pocket for a later thing. Uh, that hasn't been reported on, but he did say that he's not going to be uh, dealing with Russia on those matters anymore, especially he did bring up uh, uh, political dissidents within Russia. Uh, he did bring up Nelvaney's name that that guy needs to be released. Uh, that's always good. He called out China for their human rights violations um, that's, it's different. Okay. Uh, previous, previous administration, when they called out China, they talked about unfair trade practices and, uh, you know, tariffs and whatnot. And that's all, um, in this case, Biden's focus on China was more the humanitarian thing. And while he didn't mention the Uyghurs, um, that is something that, you know, China needs to deal with. And also the anti-democracy movements that they're taking in places like Hong Kong, and they work from the sides in Taiwan. So Biden called them out on those. That's also fantastic. He said he's uh, going after authoritarianism in general, which is also good. I'd be interested. He didn't mention India at all, but I would be interested to see how the relationship between the United States and India fosters, considering India has their own president uh, or prime minister, I'm unsure, a guy named Modi. Uh, and he is... Whew, he's a piece of work. Um, he's definitely an authoritarian, and he's slowly, year by year, transforming the Indian people from a dem democracy into a full-fledged uh, authoritarian fascism type. So that's something that the world needs to watch out for. I mean, when you've got protests in your street that are just as large as the entire population of the United States, I think the world should pay attention to that. That's uh, probably what we'll be talking about on Monday. There is a lot going on in India right now. Um, he also called out uh, Myanmar, Burma. I'm unsure which to call it. Uh, Biden called it Burma. The media has been reporting it as Myanmar. I don't know which is correct. I will have to look into that. Um, but he did call for the military to relinquish power and to give back power to the democratically elected individuals. He used a lot of language that easily could have been switched over to talking about here in the United States about domestic issues, uh, specifically saying that uh, it's never right to use force to overturn a democratically elected government. 
that kind of stuff where you're like, hey, is he talking about Myanmar or is he talking about us? Because it could be either one. Uh, either way, positive. Uh, we're always in favor of democracy. We definitely favor democracy over a military dictatorship. I don't think that's, you know, something people should be arguing about at all. Uh, he did mention that there is a positive movement with Russia, though. Uh, for example, the New START Treaty, which is our nuclear arms agreement with the uh, former Soviet Union that was carried over into Russia when they broke up. Uh, he did say that uh, President Putin has agreed to a five-year extension on that, which, again, good. Uh, I would like to see more nuclear treaties around the world with everyone, you know, non-proliferation and whatnot. But, you know, I'll take what I can get right now. Uh he did call for Navani to be released immediately, uh, wants to confront China's economic abuses, uh, then went on to say that uh, in the spirit of cooperation, working with the world, he was going to rejoin the Paris Climate Agreement, which is also good considering the United States is the only country in the entire planet that wasn't a part of it. So we were outliers there and it did kind of seem ridiculous, especially considering the, the Paris Climate Agreement is non-binding. Okay, that's like, it's like a New Year's resolution. Oh, on January 1st, I promise I'm going to do 25 push-ups a day every day for the new year. And then you don't do it. Um, is it a big deal? Eh, not really. I mean, sure, you wanted to, and maybe you did for a few days, but then, eh, you know, things happen. Uh, that's kind of what the, the, the Paris Climate Agreement was, which is why everybody thought it was absolutely ridiculous that Trump backed out of it. None of it was binding. It was just a pinky promise between countries to please not pollute some more. It was ridiculous that we would drop out of it. I mean, if we didn't, no one would care. And if we did, we'd get a bravo. Good job. You know, I mean, it was just ridiculous. Uh, but he did, you know, say global cooperation was a goal of his. This was one of them. Another one was uh, rejoining, re-engaging, excuse me, the World Health Organization. So the World Health Organization is like NATO for diseases and for just taking care of the world in general. Uh, the United States does contribute cash to it, so does everyone else. Uh, one of the worries we're having right now is under Trump, Trump blamed them explicitly for COVID being an issue, which is kind of interesting, uh, because on one hand, he would say it was a media hoax, and then on the other, he would blame the organization in charge of taking care of diseases for not taking care of the hoax. Regardless, he decided to pull all funding from it. Now. That's an issue, as anyone can tell you, uh, you know, it, it, it. you follow the money, okay? So for example, you know, the United States does a full pullout on the World Health Organization. That would make China its new number one benefactor. So China fully funds it. Sure, the rest of the countries put in a dime or two here or there, but it's mostly China. And then the World Health Organization puts out a report that says, oh, actually COVID didn't come from China. It came from Mongolia or wherever that's a problem. Because even if the World Health Organization 100% took it at face value and, and were being honest, if China's your number one funder and you say China did nothing wrong, there are people who are not going to believe you just because of where the money came from. So it is important that the United States not let credible large organizations like this be taken over by a country like China. It matters where this country gets its funding from. Does the 
is the U.S. infallible? Absolutely not. We make mistakes all the time. But if you had to choose between do you trust the Chinese government versus the American government, I think a lot of the world would prefer the United States government over the Chinese. Again, these are shades of gray. You know, it, it, it matters. Um, other things, uh, in, in addition to the NATO thing, he said he was going to stop Trump's troop withdrawal from Germany. Germany has a base in it. Uh, it's one of our largest, if not the largest military base, uh, outside of us soil that we have. It's a main staging area for all European, North African, uh, Eastern European, you know, launching points. So it was very important that we have it. Trump wanted to withdraw troops from it, obviously, to weaken it. Uh, reports are the Pentagon kind of slow walked this because they knew Biden was coming in and didn't want to, you know, get started on this massive troop redeployment with somebody who might just come in and say, okay, never mind, let's not do that. So that's always good. Uh, and then, you know, what I considered the lead on this story, uh, which will be coming up just next. So the biggest part of the speech that I found the best part, <laughs> and it has been emphasized in the media, but but I think the really shocking or let's just, I don't want to say shocking, but abrupt. Okay. There was no, we're going to draw down. There was no, we're going to slow down. It was just, no, I'll stop. All of this has to deal with Yemen and Saudi Arabia. So in case you weren't aware, uh, there is currently what the UN and many other organizations are describing as the world's largest humanitarian crisis on the planet today happening in the country of Yemen. Uh, Saudi Arabia has decided for whatever reasons that we are going to blow the hell out of it, basically. Um, and that's one thing for one country to declare war on another. Um, it happens, unfortunately. Uh, the thing that's really bugged most people here in the United States is that we're helping them, or at least have been. Uh, we haven't used troops, but basically we've been giving these uh, Saudis uh, satellite information, which they then use to strike at Yemen. And also under Trump, we had a massive arms sell-off, basically, with Saudi Arabia. Now, Trump was using this all as, a, oh, look, I'm creating jobs. We're making weapons. I don't really know how much, how many jobs making weapons gets you. Or if it's even worth it. So, I was like this. Say you have a million dollars. And you spend that million dollars on a bomb. Well, either you, your best hope is the bomb is never used. The bomb sits on a shelf somewhere in a storage facility, and it's never used. It's just a million bucks sitting on a shelf, and you're hoping it never gets used. Well, say it is used. That's a million dollars. Did you create Anything from that other than a giant hole in the ground? Did you build anything? I suppose you can make the argument you saved lives, but it's not very direct. 
And it's also possible with every bomb we drop that we just created another terrorist. I'm convinced you take any human being in this world and you put them in the right conditions and they will do harm to another human being. I think it's perfectly reasonable to assume that. Now say you take that million dollars and instead of building a bomb, you build a school. That school will probably stand for decades. It will teach thousands upon thousands, perhaps over a million children. And those children, even if they don't all become superstars of their field, they will go out, they will produce, and they will consume in the name of the economy, in the, in the name of society. There is a dollar figure to each one of us. So I would argue that a million dollars spent on a school is better than a million dollars spent on a bomb. So I always found the argument of we're increasing jobs or we're helping the economy or society by building bombs as being kind of a house of cards. A bomb is the here and now. A school is the future, and it is hard to tell people Hey, by doing this thing here, 20 years down the line, you'll see a benefit. Whereas you can otherwise say, hey, if we spend this money here, you can see something happen next week. But anyway, under the Trump administration, we had been selling billions of dollars of military-grade weaponry to the Saudi Arabian kingdom sometimes over the objection of Congress. So Biden comes in and he immediately said yesterday that uh, we're no longer going to be selling weapons to the Saudi Arabians and that the United States will no longer be providing support for their war in Yemen. That's one thing. That was the bare minimum we were all hoping uh, President Biden would do uh, for anybody who recognizes that this is gone beyond war and is now punitive. Saudi Arabians could easily go to the table and demand their surrender right now. They could demand peace talks. They could install their own puppet government over the Yemeni government. They're not. They're just destroying them. They're targeting civilians. They're killing them indiscriminately. It is no longer whatever justified the war. It is now punishment. Maybe it's a training exercise to them, but it has gone far beyond its original purpose. It'd be like us after World War II, Hitler's dead, the Nazi regime has completely collapsed, but you know what? We've just decided we're just going to keep bombing Berlin. We're just going to surround Berlin and bombard it day after day after day, even though the white flag has been raised and there's no semblance of a government there. We're you know what? We're not done. We we still have a lot of bombs to blow up, and we're going to blow them up. And, oh, all the military places are gone? Fine, we'll blow up the commercial places. Oh, all the factories are down? Fine, we'll blow up the apartment buildings. I, that, that's what's going on in Yemen right now. <clears throat> so the bare minimum we were all hoping for was, please, 
stop selling them weapons and can we not support their genocide maybe please that was the bare minimum and to biden's credit he ran when he ran he said he would do these things and we were all like great that's fantastic that was the bare minimum we were all hoping for that was the bare minimum i think humanity requests but i think trump on his way out the door accidentally forced biden's hand on an issue so before trump left uh you know obviously you had everyone declaring yemen a, a world a, a crisis a humanitarian crisis there's starvation there's disease this is just this isn't this isn't funny anymore <clears throat> well the trump organization under secretary of state mike pompeo who has ambitions for 2024 so don't forget this crap decided to declare the yemenese government whatever's left of it i believe they're called the houthis uh, a terrorist organization. By doing so, that cuts off a lot of humanitarian aid, say like uh, Doctors Without Borders. You know, they, they can't get in there now. When you declare a nation a hotspot of terror, it cuts off a lot, especially humanitarian aid. Because now you can't send humanitarian aid because they're terrorists, right? So you can't assist the terrorists. So you can't send in medical supplies. You can't send in food. You can't send in doctors. You can't send in anything. That, in theory, is okay. But when you say a government is that, who, who's part of government and who isn't? Right? Like, so say uh, China decided to invade the United States and they said, we're going to kill everyone in government. Who is that? We, I am, I would think we all support the United States government over Chinese invaders. So wouldn't that make everyone a supporter of the government? And if China declared the United States government a terrorist organization in the middle of their invasion, anyone who supports the government is now also a terrorist, whether you are or not. So... On his way out, he goes ahead and makes this completely ridiculous move to call an entire government terrorists, right or wrong. It ties the hands of Biden. But in this case, I think Biden responded correctly. Now, removing the terrorist or, uh, you know, designation is difficult. It's not as easy as, the, you know, it's kind of dumb. The president can just go ahead and sign a pen and say, you're a terrorist nation. But apparently removing it is a lot harder. And there are a lot of uh, bureaucratic hurdles that need to be jumped through before that can happen. But one thing that he did do was he said that he would send a special envoy that has been appointed by our new Secretary of State, Blinken. <clears throat> and he's going to send them to Yemen to begin peace talks, to... Uh, negotiate a settlement, uh, ceasefire in particular. Uh, now, this is good. He's actually sending Americans to Yemen. So if the Saudis are stupid, which I don't think they are, they will continue to bomb Yemen while American citizens are there, while American diplomats are there. If American diplomats die at the hands of an American weapon shot by Saudis, you could see how that would cause a problem. Biden would be forced to take even more action. 
which I don't think the Saudis want. I think the Saudis would prefer a more hands-off approach than uh, being interventionist. So by doing that, by sending in an envoy, by sending in, you know, basically diplomats to try to negotiate something, uh, he's forcing the Saudis' hand. And he's also basically, this, this is the first step to removing that terrorist designation. You know, the envoy, I assume, will have the power to either report on or, you know, jump through one of those hurdles I was talking about to get that designation removed if it is warranted. Or possibly it might be easier just to shift it. Perhaps there is a terroristic element to the Yemeni people that could rightly receive that designation and then remove it from just the blanket general everyone. Um, so that, that is also good. Uh, we, we could move it over, but at the same time, it's like one person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter. Um, it, it, it is difficult to me how you could say anybody in Yemen is a terrorist if they're defending themselves, right? Again, to use the, the Chinese invasion analogy, you know, China invades the United States. <clears throat> I'm surrounded by Chinese soldiers who are oppressing me. Uh, so, you know, I, I blow up one of their convoys. Am I defending myself or am I a terrorist? And this isn't to defend terrorism in general, but you could see how the designation matters. Am I really a terrorist? Am I trying to terrorize the people? No, I'm trying to terrorize the soldiers who are invading my country. It is a little different. You know, I, I believe terrorism needs to be more delicately defined in government because right now I think you can call anybody you want a terrorist and that is a problem. There is a difference between a terrorist and somebody who is defending their home. And right now, the way the laws are written, there's no distinction between the two. That is a problem. That's something we need to address going forward. Um, so it's very important that that get removed. It sounds like uh, President Biden is, is taking the first steps toward that. Uh, <clears throat> so this is important uh, because the Yemeni people are in dire straits. There are They are refugees that no one will take um, for fear of pissing off Saudi Arabia. Um, and and they've, they've got nowhere to go. And their home is destroyed. And they're going... The Yemen is going to be one of those areas that will take decades, perhaps multiple generations to fix, if that's even possible at this point. Uh, along that line, uh, President Biden closed out the speech uh, by talking about immigration and how he, you know, uh, under the previous administration, excuse me, previous administration, they had spoken a lot about uh, and gotten rid of uh, refugees. Basically, refugees weren't allowed in the United States for four years. Well, Congress has allowed a max of uh, 125,000 refugees into the United States per year. Uh, President Biden said that that is going to be starting up again. Also good. This is good. We want refugees. Um, we want them to have their day in court. We don't want them to be discouraged from coming here. The United States um, may seem packed and crowded in certain spots. But there is a lot of empty land here and... There are a lot of jobs that could be done. Um, diversity is good uh, in just about everything. Diversity in your diet, diversity in the people, diversity in ideas, diversity in cultures. These are all good things, okay? If 
if there was no diversity in the United States, you wouldn't know what Mexican or Italian or Chinese food is. Trust me, you want some diversity. Um, if for nothing else, then, then to help us eat better. Um, but yeah, uh, so, so Biden gave this huge speech. He struck all the right notes for people who, if you love democracy, he's very pro-democracy. If you think human rights is an issue, he's very pro-human rights. If you think ending genocide is a good thing, he obviously threw out a fig leaf there. Um, but some real concrete things in the way of Saudi Arabia and Yemen, I, was a little disappointed he didn't mention the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, I think that is an issue that the United States is going to have to deal with. It is possible that this is one of those things that Biden sweeps under the rug, um, or at least prefers not to deal with, just because Saudi Arabia is an ally in the Middle East. Um, we don't necessarily need their oil right now, but still, allies are at a premium. You don't want to make an enemy when you have an ally if you can avoid it. And right now, I think you can avoid it. So I think he's going to. Uh, I hope he doesn't. I hope he does, you know, take him to task. Because this was something that, that needs to be addressed is it's one thing to talk tough about China, Russia, Iran. Um, you know, the point is made is, you know, how do you talk to our allies? Saudi Arabia is an ally. Saudi Arabia has gigantic human rights violations that they have serious problems. Are we going to call them out on it? It's easy to withdraw support of a war that has gone into genocide. From a moral standpoint, it's extremely easy. Just be like, hey, we're not going to help you with your genocide anymore. Bye. Um, it would be a lot harder to turn to a friend and tell them you have, you have these destructive behaviors that you need to stop or we can't be your friend anymore. And I'm curious, you know, I'm using Saudi Arabia as an example here, um, but we have other allies that have issues. We have Turkey. Turkey is making military trades with Russia and Turkey's a member of NATO. That is very concerning, um, obviously. Uh, Turkey has its own humanitarian rights violations. It has, uh, it's imprisoning journalists and dissenters, uh, to their, you know, current party in charge. He didn't mention Turkey. He kind of enveloped everybody under that whole anti-authoritarianism, you know, pledge. But it will be interesting to see how the individual pieces on the chessboard move from now on. Um. So, I mean, it was a positive speech. It was something uh, that most Americans, I think, could get behind. Um, there wasn't anything too drastic. You know, he didn't call out Iran by name, uh, probably preferring, because Iran is its own foreign policy speech all by itself. So I think he, you know, just hit the broad points on this one. He did focus a little on Saudi Arabia, which is good. But in reality, morally, that was a softball. It's important. It's very important. But you know, morally, it's, yes, of course, we should not be involved in genocide. Thank you. Um, so it will be interesting to see how we move forward from this point with countries like Iran, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, even Israel. Um, and then, of course, you you have Myanmar and China and, you know, everybody else. Uh, this is why I love foreign policy. It, it is very much a chessboard. 
and uh, the pieces all have to move. But it's like four-player chess. If you've never played that, that is a riot. You know, you think you're dealing with one person, but then you have another two that um, that need to be taken into account. Yes, thank you, children. Uh, so, um, you know, I obviously need to wrap it up. I have uh, kids that are awake and probably want food or something, even though they have plenty of it. Um, so we'll leave it at that. Um, I will see you guys next week. Like I said, probably either focusing on Burma or India's got a lot of craziness going on. Uh, but in general, that is what's going on. Uh, other news was uh, Congress has stripped Marjorie Taylor Greene of all her committee assignments. I don't really know if that's going to fix anything. You know, you're kind of just giving her more stuff to talk about, you know, she's, she's crazy. You try to silence crazy. Now she gets to turn to her crazy audience and say, aha, see the establishment's out to get me and silence you because that's how that works. Um, you make it a mirror. Anything that happens to you means it's actually happening to everyone who supports you. Um, but anyway, uh, I'll see you guys next week. Hope you enjoyed this one. Like, subscribe, all that good stuff, and uh, tell your friends about it. Uh, wider audience, the better. You can always reach us at recoveryfrompolitics at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all that stuff. Uh, like it, leave messages. I will respond, I promise. And you guys have a great weekend and a good Super Bowl. Go Chiefs. <laughs>